1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday.
0: Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.
1: We're going to talk about the convention, the Democratic National Convention that happened this week and look ahead to next week's Republican National Convention. But, you know, clearly, if you watched it at all, you saw that we are still in the midst of a massive medical and health care crisis in this country. It is worth remembering, even amid more positive economic news, and certainly a market that's very enthusiastic. So let's check in on the virus, get the latest, especially from outside our little bubble here in the tri-state area. Dr. Harold Paz is with us, the CEO of Wexner Medical Center, Chancellor of Health Affairs at Ohio State University. He joins us from the Buckeye State. So Dr. Paz, really nice to have you back with us. So help us understand where we are. What's it like on the ground where you are? Thank you very much, Jason, uh, delighted
2: to be back. So, you know, in Ohio, we're seeing a, a leveling off um, in the in the Columbus area of the number of patients uh, that are being hospitalized. We were at our peak in, in mid-April, and uh, we've seen those numbers uh, slowly come down. Uh, we still have COVID positive patients in the hospital, and we're certainly seeing them in, in the clinical sites. But um, the good news is uh, we're nowhere near our peak, and, and that's important.
0: And is it also about not only about numbers coming down, certainly in states like yours and other places, we've certainly seen it come down dramatically, uh, Dr. Paz, in, in New York, but is it also about, compared to where we were maybe even just a month ago, we are, we've started to really figure out ways to treat patients who come down with coronavirus so that they may get sick, but we can keep them alive?
2: Yeah. And, and that's another important point. Um, among the patients that are hospitalized, we're seeing fewer patients in the intensive care unit setting on ventilators. And that's really important. And there are a number of things that uh, have, been, have been used uh, over the past several months that we've learned a lot. Uh, remdesivir, which is the uh, antiviral drug that we can give intravenously, um, has been added. We're using uh, a steroid drug called dexamethasone, uh, prone posturing uh, so that patients are put on their abdomens as opposed to on their backs and given high flow oxygen so they don't have to go on mechanical ventilation. And um, there, are, there have been efforts to use convalescent plasma as well. And that I, I know there continues to be uh, research looking at how effective that is but all these different approaches as they come together mean that we're coming up with more and more effective ways to help patients that become critically ill with the virus. And, and of course, all the things that we're doing on the ground to prevent the spread, and that's incredibly important, getting everybody to wear a mask, to socially distance, and to wash their hands as, as frequently as they can, not touching their eyes, ears, nose, or mouth, because right. we want to stop the spread. That's the first step is blocking the spread, which gets the overall numbers down.
1: So, Dr. Paz, talk to us about rapid testing, because I feel like that is something that's really come to the fore this week. There's a lot of, I think, enthusiasm and optimism around that. That even came up uh, last night in former Vice President Joe Biden's speech around what he would do uh, if he were elected. Where are we? How effective? What should we be thinking about when it comes to rapid testing?
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of progress uh, being made in testing, and we're looking for the results to show how effective these new forms of testing are. Let me just give you a little bit of background on this. So what we were using up until now primarily is what's called viral RNA detection. So the genetic code in a virus is different than in people. In people, it's DNA. In this particular virus, it's RNA and what we're looking for is the signature RNA for this virus that causes COVID-19. And you do that on a machine called a PCR machine, polymerase chain reaction machine. That's the gold standard. We set that up at the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center, 10 machines, and we could do up to 4,500 tests a day. But it takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, takes, it takes more than, than 15 minutes. But then again, it is highly sensitive for the virus and highly specific. We estimate that our test at Ohio State Wexner has over 99 percent sensitivity rate to find the virus. So it's great. But, you know, it results on average take 48 hours or so to get back to the patient. And we've all heard these stories of patients going into some places and it takes seven days. Right. So that's a challenge. So. Newer, newer types of testing um, depend on something else, which is called viral antigen detection. So instead of looking for the RNA ins- that, that the virus codes for, it's looking for an antigen on the surface of the virus. And this, these tests can yield results within 30 minutes and without uh-huh. specialized instruments. This, clearly, this is, this is a public health issue, and it's really a matter of uh, doing all the things that we need to do with any epidemic or pandemic from a public health and a, a medical standpoint. And it's really about prevention. It's about diagnosis, as we were just talking about briefly a few minutes ago. And it's about effective treatments. And part of that is having uh, the vaccines available to prevent uh, the spread of this virus and to make sure that we can develop herd immunity So that there um, there is not going to be additional waves of of this COVID nineteen virus uh, spreading through our communities.
0: So, but can I can I just follow because I do feel like the virus, though, as you know, has become rather political. We certainly saw it early on in terms of getting access to equipment for there being, you know, a a message for the entire country. And Mm -hmm. it's safe to say, you know this better than we do, that it definitely has, you know, made it more difficult for us to get ahead of the virus because Mm -hmm. we were all kind of doing things differently.
2: Yeah, so I can tell you that in Ohio, uh, the governor of Ohio, uh, Governor DeWine, has taken uh, a very strong leadership role in, in all aspects of dealing with this pandemic. Everything from being very clear about the need to to wear a mask, about the programs around social distancing, and uh, ensuring that we can go out and, and do the things that we need to do in terms of testing and, and then making sure we had things like reagents to run these PCR machines I mentioned before all the way to coordinating among the hospitals to deal with uh, patients should there be a surge and these hospital facilities get stretched to their limitations. So it is exceptionally about about having appropriate leadership in place and, and taking that view uh, at the very top all the way through to how we deliver care in our local
1: communities. So, Dr. Paz, before we let you go, talk to us about reopening, uh, mm-hmm. Ohio State specifically, but also the advice that you're giving even lower down uh, in the educational system as we think about K-12. Of
2: course. Well, we're spending a lot of time, as you can imagine, at Ohio State, Um, as we reopen the university and we want to make sure that uh, we're able to do that and to do it safely and that of course means that we want to test our students as they come back we want to make sure that we de-densify classes so these large lecture classes that all of us know from when we were in college are not going to work right now so that we do over distance learning but smaller classes where we can have appropriate distancing keep our students six feet apart Make sure they're wearing masks, make sure our faculty are wearing masks, particularly in areas like the medical school, where they have to be physically present, or even in areas like theater arts where, or in dance, where they have to be in a class. You can't do that over your TV monitor. We want to make sure that we can continue to do these things, but do them safely and of course this has had an impact on some programs like athletics and right. resulted in some very difficult decisions that needed to be made to keep our students and our staff and our faculty safe but we are all doing this with the notion that we're going to get through this thing and you know I'd like to tell you the precise day Um, in the next year when this will all be done, but it will be done, and we'll be on the other side of it, and then we're going to get back to all the things that we used to do at the university to their fullest extent. But in the meantime, without shutting down entirely, and that's what we want to avoid at Mm -hmm. all costs, is to have to shut down entirely, we want to do as much as we possibly can that we can do safely.
1: Right. All right. Well, uh, we've run out of time. We'd love to have, have you back soon because you are really at the nexus of so many things that we're interested in when it comes to fighting this virus, the future of education. And as you alluded to... Buckeye football, I mean, goodness gracious, no Big Ten football, yikes. You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Well, when you think about what's going on in the world, and when the name Steve Bannon comes into the headlines like yes. it did yesterday with a vengeance— there is one thing you want to read, and that's anything that Josh Green writes. And we're fortunate to have that as the centerpiece of our political conversation today. Joining us Amanda Colson Hurley, she is politics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. She edited this piece. And Joel Weber, of course, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, he joins us from Massachusetts. So, Joel, I was so happy when this hit the wire because it's what you want to know. It is what's going on and a reminder of who Steve Bannon is.
3: Uh, that's right. And, and uh, you know, Josh Green, uh, for those that don't know him, um, wrote a book that is very much about Steve Bannon and sort of the power that um, he's been able to wield um, on the right. And so uh, that's called The Devil's Bargain. Um, and I had kind of nudged uh, Amanda earlier in the day. Josh is obviously a very busy man right now um, with an election around the corner, and we've got him on all kinds of stories. And I was like, just, you know, by the way, just make sure that you remember to nudge Josh because we saw this, <laughs> this Bannon headline flash that he had been arrested. And I was like, oh, boy, of all the people in the world, like I desperately want to read right now, Josh Green just made himself that number one person. Um, and so Amanda – Uh, And Josh got it done. Um, Amanda, what's ultimately Josh's take in the story?
4: Yeah, so Josh's take is that Bannon's indictment sort of represents uh, the end of this this arc of um, a political project that uh, Bannon kind of began when he was advising Trump uh, before, you know, when Trump was campaigning in 2016, that uh, it was really Bannon. Who had this vision um, of combining a sort of um, anti-immigrant nationalism with uh, economic populism um, to, uh, to kind of come up with this uh, what he thought was like a winning, um, you know, multi-generational kind of uh, winning formula for the Republican Party, um, and I think at the time of uh, you know. Republican Party leaders were really not sold on that. Uh, they really thought that uh, they had to start to pivot to the center a little bit more, um, try to win over more moderate uh, voters, um, try to make more inroads with um, minority groups. Um, but Bannon, uh, Bannon's vision or insight proved to be correct in 2016. You know, Trump won, um, but uh, you know, Bannon. Um, so Bannon kind of. Thought that uh, you know this was going to be the beginning of um, a grand political project that would unfold from there. Um, and, you know what actually happened was that um, he pretty quickly alienated himself, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, from other people in the White House. He left the White House. He kind of tried to drum up uh, a kind of global nationalist political movement um, that has so far, you know. Uh, not yielded too much, at least for him. Um, and uh, this you know recent indictment kind of shows that um, he was not able to deliver on uh, you know a key promise of that vision that he shaped for Trump, which was the wall. Um, you know this was an effort to privately fund and build uh, the border wall. Um, and it collected uh, something like twenty five million dollars in donations from hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and the allegation is that uh, Bannon and and three others um, kind of used uh, a nonprofit and I think a shell company to uh, to funnel some of that money, uh, you know, to themselves personally. Um, and so Bannon, you know, this represents arguably, you know, the end of uh, his political project. But notably, Trump has also not been able to deliver on some of these things either. Um, you know, he has uh, not right. built a, a great big beautiful wall as he promised on the campaign trail. Um, you know, it, it's well, very you know- difficult to argue that America is kind of great again. I mean, with uh, you know his his tax cuts, uh, you know, benefited arguably the rich and not so much the kind of middle class uh, as that Bannon I think and Trump you know had hoped.
0: Well, Amanda, that's what's really interesting. And I love just even the title, you know, that Josh puts and you guys put on this at the end of, you know, it may mean the end of Steve Bannon, maybe Trump too. And it's interesting because as you say, they laid out this platform There were critical states of voters who bought into that platform and brought Trump to the White House come 2016. And yet now, you know, first of all, we know Bannon and Trump aren't a pair anymore. And you're realizing that that political platform that got Trump to the White House, you know, um, isn't there. He didn't he didn't follow through. And then you do wonder about, Okay, so what impact might that have come 2020, come November?
4: Right. Well, um, I think uh, that clearly remains to be seen. Um, There are certainly some things that uh, I would guess, you know, Trump voters believe that uh, he has delivered on. Um, I'm sure there, uh, you know, he has uh, put a lot of, uh, you know, uh, conservative judges. Uh, He has made a lot of those appointments. And that was a really big, um, uh, you know, that that was uh, a really big factor, I think, for a lot of people who voted for him. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, there are, you know, other variables in this, um, but uh, certainly um, some of those, I, I guess, the kind of signature, you might also almost call them Bannonian kind of goals uh, from the 2016 campaign uh, do seem, you know, do seem to be unfulfilled at this point.
1: Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting reminder of how uh, important. He was, and especially on the eve of the Republican uh, National Convention next week, Carol, uh, yeah. you know, a reminder of what we saw in 2016 and how integral to it Steve Bannon was. It's a great must read. Uh, check it out online and on the Bloomberg terminal. Josh Green wrote it, Amanda Hurley edited it. She's the politics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. She joined us, as did Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. <laughs>
3: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Yes, indeed. Bloomberg Business Week on this Friday. i got to say, listening, Jason, recently one morning, as I like to do, to surveillance with Tom Keene and the gang, Danny Blanchflower was on. He was talking about walk-around economics, which I just wanted to hear more about. So in today's Business Week Economics, excited to have with us Professor of Economics Danny Blanchflower from Dartmouth College, former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member. He joins us on the phone from Hanover, New Hampshire. Um, Professor Blanchflower, it is so nice to have you on. I love it when you're on with Keene and the gang. You're so much fun. Um, So much to talk about when it comes to the economy. And first up, I want to talk about what's so important to the economy, education, those in school, those who just graduated, you know, they're coming into a really tough workplace. Tell me about kind of what you're setting up for in the fall. Well,
3: there's a a number of things. I mean, I think there's, there's two bits really to start us going. The first, Well, three. The first is what are we doing about the kids' My Dartmouth kids who graduated in June and July of this year uh, and others, how are they doing with all the people on uh, layoff, if you like, and the the struggles in the job market? I just saw today Massachusetts has an unemployment rate of, what, 16 Mm percent. So what's happening to them, um, particularly what's happening to kids who aren't going to college, what's happening to those folks? And in fact, it's not perhaps surprising that we're seeing unrest in cities. Think about... So the kids who left school, maybe they were high school dropouts. what are they doing? What hope of work is there for them? And then the third group is obviously the the kids that are going to college right now. Um, And I taught class in the spring remote. Um, Dartmouth, we are supposed to have some of our freshmen coming back, although this week they put that back again. And old faculty like me, um, we're staying home. So even though the students may be coming to, to the university, the faculty are not are not there i mean so this is obviously kind of chaotic and i think the, the big implication we should think of bloomberg should be concerned about what's happening in the towns what's happening in the places you know where the where the kids are on the street but also if they're not going to print then they're not going to harvard i mean think about harvard there's the, the whole institution all the things around uh in cambridge and around the universities in that in that great city this is a really downward shock to spending. And the good news that you were just giving, remember, these are lagging indicators. We're going to see a downward pressure in the next few weeks as, the, as we approach the, the election. So, so this is all very
1: complicated,
3: but um, none of it's very good
1: news. Right. Well, and Danny, that, that gets us right to this whole notion of, of walk-around economics that, that Carol and I talk about, even on the very rare occasions that she and I leave our homes and go back to our office for for a day or two, the neighborhood around Bloomberg in the same way that you're talking about these college towns that are suffering. What is the way to to measure that? How do you approach that in terms of really quantifying the net effect here? Yeah, Uh, I mean, let's put this in context.
3: I mean, I was on the Bank of England and well-known these days for saying a year ahead of things that um, the data is looking really bad. My economics of walking about, talking to people, observing what I see was changing. So obviously some of it has to do with surveys that Bloomberg talks about. You talk about the PMIs and you talk about all sorts of things like that. But a lot of it is, I think, you walk around the streets of New York, you walk up Lexington and what do you see? You don't see people. You know, I mean, all these people sitting at home working. So I'll give you a story. I remember being in, in, in England early in 2008, and I was in a taxi cab driving down Oxford Street. And the taxi driver said, I know who you are. He said, you've been talking about the recession here. And he said, I've been driving up and down this, this most busy street in Europe for 30 years around Christmas. And he said, I've seen something. And he said, for the very first time, I've seen the shoppers are walking around and they don't have shopping bags. Mm. Well, well, there's a great example, right? So with then a little bit later, we suddenly start to see a big drop in spending. But the economics of walking about is, is essentially what firms do all the time. It's market intelligence. It's looking at, you know, walk down your street. And, I, and in 2007, I was walking down the streets around here, and businesses were closing. Hanover Main Street at Dartmouth is basically half empty. So none of this has really picked up. So I think the economics of walking about is essentially what Bloomberg is so good at, It's market intelligence. It's looking at, well, what's happening to people, you know, what's happening to the people going through the toll booths? How many people are going through the TSA checks? What's happening to Grubhub? What's happening to um, all these kinds of things? And the evidence from those is that it was very early showing slowing, and it's really not showing a great pickup in many of the states that have seen more COVID. So it's about, I think, being smart, and especially in the world, Right. Where the, the normal survey indicators don't pick things up. So in the UK, the unemployment rate still hasn't moved from three point nine, even though there's ten million people on, furloughed <laughs> on, on benefits. So I think yeah. in this period now, you really have to switch your brain on and start to think what's really going on, and perhaps what I see on the street. I mean, interesting. What do you see on the street around? bloomberg was in the the very quiet street very well you
1: know
0: what's what's wild too danny isn't i had to pop into the city for a medical appointment this morning but it was like i flew in driving which is unheard of at like eight in the morning you know and then even coming home you know i don't i'm not doing and my husband's a little happy but i'm not doing that you know normal walk you know home after work you know shopping and stopping in stores i mean you're just you're not we're not always able to walk around so easily
3: well, I think that's right. And I think so. think about what Larry Kudlow's been saying, keeps saying that there's a V-shaped recovery. So what a V-shaped recovery means is that you went down. I mean, remember, we went down really, really, really quickly. Right. So a V-shaped recovery means that you're going to recover just as quickly. Well, that I mean, if, if, if what you said is true, which I'm sure it is, that throws the whole idea of a V-shaped recovery on its head because we came down very fast. And we're recovering very slowly. So that's not a V, that might be an L. And then if the COVID spreading elsewhere, then the thing flattens out. But I think this is about what market folks do and what Bloomberg is so especially good at. It doesn't make sense. The numbers often coming out don't make sense. Yes, we're seeing in Europe today that retail sales have picked up and the PMIs have picked up and so on.
0: So, Danny, you were talking about a V-shaped recovery. You said, you know, our recovery right now is not very strong. It's very slow in coming. I've been reading about folks talking about this K-shaped recovery. We all keep talking about different letters and symbols. But this idea that parts of our economy are doing okay, and that's the upper part, obviously, of the K, and, you know, the lower part, there are parts that aren't. Right. So, what do you what do you think? what do you, What do you what kind of visibility do you feel like we have, and what does it mean for twenty twenty one?
3: Well, obviously, we have rather different experiences going on in some parts of the country. So, I'm in New Hampshire, and I go back and forth between New Hampshire and Vermont, and there's very there's very few cases there. But I think, in a sense, the recovery it's hard for people to know. And if people say, "I know what the what the recovery is. I think the right answer is to say that they have no idea. And obviously it depends upon a number of things. It depends on this virus and and a vaccine. It depends upon what governments do, uh, what they do about masks and whether they close things down and whether the treasury puts in money and the Congress passes a deal. But I think the biggest thing in many senses is sort of what we've been talking about. What do people do? Do people change their spending patterns? Yes, if you're in a job and you talked about, it, you go to the, the the shoe shop, which has traditionally been there. Yeah. okay it's open, but the issue is how much are they making? How many hours a week are they working? Right. So even if people are in work, um, are they actually uh, making enough money and, are, and going forward, are they going to change their behavior um, permanently? So the idea, yeah the, the subway series isn't going to take place. But maybe for the next five years, is it going to be back to normal again? Are people suddenly going to say it's OK to go to sports events and travel on the subway and go to a store and go to restaurants and so on? So I think that's hard to know. But certainly some groups, I, I assume, are going to change their behavior. And certainly if you're in a place where COVID's is spreading. Um, so I think the answer is it really does depend. Mm-hmm. But the idea trotted out by the government to say that, yeah, there's a great, there's a V-shaped recovery coming. I think what you can probably say, the one thing we know that there isn't one that's that coming because of all the things you've talked about. Right. And I think recovery will be slow. Um, how do you know whether there's a second round or not? How do you know how people are going to change their behavior? What, are, what do we know about what the Congress is going to do? Are they going to pass a $3 trillion measure? Who is it going to impact? What are people going to do? So I think the answer is if anybody says, you know, I'm going to forecast Blanchard I would say to them, well, what you should do is say, it really depends. Here's four scenarios, and right. under these scenarios, this is what we do. Uh, and anybody who says anything different, I think, is just lying. So I think we're in a completely unknown world, and I think the big worry especially is what's going on in the labor market and um, how fearful are people about losing their jobs and what's happened to their incomes. Right. Um, okay, I mean, you know, yeah, we said, great, the unemployment number's coming down. People are back to work. Well, what if you're back to work and you're making half as many hours as you made before? That's going to be very different. So I think, you know, I think we have to wait and watch and do the economics of walking about because the, because the the old stuff that we looked at is blindingly useless now. Right. It doesn't and hold. And I think you just have to you just have to be sensible and try and and look at things. And your K-shaped recovery. I mean, presumably things are pretty different in Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire so than true. they are in. Florida, Texas, Arizona and some of them some of the Midwest right. rural states.
1: Well you know, and and, Danny
3: and in, I, and in six weeks time, who knows?
1: right. Uh, and before we let you go, I just have to ask you, and this is a big question that unfortunately you're gonna have to answer in 90 seconds, but how much do you worry about the fact that the k shape also indicates that those at higher levels of income and higher levels of education are doing okay and those at lower levels of income and lower levels of education, are not and that gap is only widening.
0: And only got about a minute, Danny. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, in a
1: minute well obviously we've seen that impact in the in the virus in COVID, it's
3: impacted groups differentially. When the central bank steps in and helps asset holders, that widens inequality. And obviously what we've seen at the moment is I mean the, the people out on the streets are dissenting about about rising inequality levels. So I think going forward we have to be mindful of this. And mindful that, you know, bring everybody along with you. Uh, and in these tough times, I mean, th- 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 we have to be mindful of that. And as I say, let's worry particularly about the young. We cannot right. leave the young behind. Uh, and I think, you
1: know, those those are issues which we have to grapple with. Um, and going forward, they're probably going to be even bigger issues. Yeah, mm. it does feel like that. All right, what a treat for us to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Danny Blanchflower, professor of economics up at Dartmouth College. That's where he joined us from Hanover, New Hampshire, lovely Hanover, uh, New Hampshire, uh, some great insights and a a real reminder. And I think this is why, Carol, you and I, to some extent, to the point that we can walk around, that any of us can walk around or drive around, we see a world and an economy with our eyes that does not reflect what we see on a screen every day. No, it doesn't.
0: Exactly. This whole idea of walkabout is just, I think, brilliant. And you're right, Jason. It's, again, I think explains so much of the disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street. So I got to say, I'm just on a high, getting some time to talk a lot of economics uh, with Danny Blanche at Dartmouth. That was a lot of fun.
1: I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Excited to have with us Erica Clower, Managing Director, Technology Equity Portfolio Manager over at Jenison Associates. So much, we don't know her. She's new to the program, Carol, but I like her already because A, she was a... Chip analyst, and B went to Georgetown University. So oh my sold, God. like this Erica, is all this is all going great Jason's here. She's gonna
0: start emailing you on a Friday. Him, right? I'm just gonna tell. I
5: him. was just gonna say hello to my fellow Hoya.
1: <laughs> I know, I love it. I, I also think we have not to get too deep into this. We'll talk about this offline. I think you work with a uh, old classmate of mine, Shido Meta, um, from I Georgetown. Do. So who is a very very good friend of mine. From uh, right. our days I'm gonna go in the out and get,
0: get. Well, I can't go to a pub again. Yeah, you yeah to exactly. Here, You're but, gonna go out but, and get a, <laughs> <laughs> get a coffee. But I'll be I'll be here, guys. As you go ahead.
1: <laughs> so Erica, talk to us about tech right now because we talk about it a lot and it's just been an amazing ride. Why? I mean, aside from like the big cat big cat names, it feels like it's a more complicated story here.
5: You know, there's a lot to unpack here in talking about the transformation to the digital economy. Um, what we're seeing is Every industry being impacted by the use of technology, whether it's telemedicine, whether it's your retailers, whether it's your traditional technology companies who are using artificial intelligence to advance the development of their own projects. So really, every um, company is a technology company these days.
0: So when you see, you know, it's funny, our Dave Wilson, who does a chart of the day, and he consistently, you know, looks at the technology sector and how much it really moves the market, makes up the market. You know, all of us who are in index funds, 401ks, we, are, we have a lot of exposure to these names as a result. Are you comfortable with that or do you feel like it's getting a little overdone and we need to be a little bit cautious here?
5: Well, you know, I think stock selection is always very important, but there are some key subsegments that I think are still in very, very early days. One example would be telemedicine. Right now, digital health is about a $40 billion business that's growing in the mid teens. There are many subsegments of that that offer a lot of interesting opportunities for growth, whether it's a patient who can monitor their glucose on their own, or even patients who are for the first time uh, seeing their doctors over the web. Um, For example, before the pandemic, only 1% of Medicare uh, patients had visited with their doctors online. 40% of Medicare patients have had a visit with their doctors since
1: COVID. Hmm. So when you think about this world that we're living in right now, Eric, and this goes back to a conversation we had with a well-known economist up at Dartmouth earlier in the show, he was talking about the sort of walkabout economy and the uh, or the walkabout sort of economic research that we all do, even if it's virtual these days. But, you know, one of the things that you see in that lack of people walking around candidly is everybody's working from home, especially, you know, fortunate people like us. And I'm guessing you're in the same situation, able to do your work remotely. It feels like this is something that's going to be a fundamental change in how business is conducted. How does that play through to an investment thesis?
5: Well, I think there's, there, there are two factors here. First of all, I agree with you completely that whether you're working or you're studying, there is going to be much more of that that goes on in the home. And there are some positive implications from that that we're already seeing. Um, From workers, they have more frequent meetings with their colleagues online, they're able to keep projects on time by using online software tools, um, and they're able to track progress with customers using those online tools. For students, um, they're able to check on their grades, check on their assignments, collaborate with other students. These are all really positive aspects of working or learning online. Having said that, I don't think that that is going to replace human-to-human interaction. So right now, I think we've seen the the pendulum swim a little bit um, far to the left, but I Mm -hmm. think uh, this certainly is going to be a trend here to stay.
0: So, what do you think about the trend? I mean, e-commerce, man. We've been all doing it, you know. But I do feel like it got kind of a kick in the pants because of the pandemic, and folks that maybe weren't ordering groceries online or weren't doing. Kick in the pants in online. a good
1: way, though, right? <laughs> a kick in like, the pants in a good way. A kickstart. All right, all
0: right. Maybe a most shot. people maybe don't think a the... kick in
1: the pants is great, but I don't know. You do. Well, you, you
0: know, you get a kick in the <laughs> pants. You get people to kind of do something even more. So I wonder what you think are the lasting impact because I do feel like retail, which we've been overstored, over mauled. You know, we're seeing that, you know, finally those companies go bankrupt. I feel for them. I feel for the people, but we knew it was coming and it certainly was, um, you know, accelerated as a result of the virus. But what do you, what do you think? How does that impact, you know, the retail stuff? What stays with us?
5: Well, I think retail is one example of a bigger trend that I think you're getting at. And that is this notion of, what, this buzzword that we hear all the time, big data, which are these very large um, data sets that can be analyzed to find patterns. And big data is very important, not just for e-commerce, commerce, but for so many applications. Um, what big data is able to do is able to determine root causes of failures um, and then basically detect those issues real time and deal with them real time. They can, as you pointed out, with e-commerce, they're a- able to, based on using big data, generate coupons at the point of sale based on what they're seeing real time in the customers' buying habits. Um, you can risk analy- analyze, analyze um, for insurance companies real time in minutes, and then the most important thing I would say for so many companies is using big data to detect fraudulent behavior before it affects an organization. So. That trend, that ability to not only have the engines to process big data, but then also the companies that are writing the software to do something with that big data, whether it's for e-commerce or robotics or automation or security, that's really where I would focus my attention to find the greatest opportunities in terms of investment.
1: All right. Well, we really appreciate the time. Erica Clower, Managing Director, Technology Equity Portfolio Manager over at Jenison Associates. Hoya Saxa, say hi to sheet for me. Um, really good to catch up with her. And look, the, the world oh. has changed in many ways. And mm-hmm. technology, it's not just the big cap story, I think. It is mm-hmm. pervasive and it is disrupting uh, everything. It's not just, you know, me ordering a bunch of T-shirts. But it I, kinda, is I got a link for custom-made T-shirts.
0: <laughs> Did you do it yet? I said,
1: I'm going to. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Why wouldn't I?
0: I? I cannot wait.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.